When I first went to India, I was astounded with the modes of worship there. Everything seemed like it was fair game for worship. I remember on the TV there was various uh, Hinduism uh, channels where you had different gods of statues of gods that you could look at, fairly grotesque images. But it wasn't just the images, it was the cows that were worshipped, they left free reign. Um, I remember going down the road and seeing a tree. It was a pretty impressive tree, granted, but I didn't want to bow down and worship it. Others did. They would have special dye that would put on it that marked it and and they would have foods placed there, sacrifice uh, for the God they believed that was in this tree. And it just hits you, uh, whether it's the prosperity gods, they even have gods of the kitchen, um, various, you name it. Uh, but I found it interesting when I heard a statement of an a Indian believer that came to America, but was shocked with the idolatry that was found in America. And I'm thinking... Well, wait a minute, you know, um, you got idols there. We, we, we don't have statues here. Um, oh, okay. I hear you're doing okay. But I mean, look, I brought out a little something. Uh, you know, I hate Monopoly. This is not Monopoly. What? If you look, it, it, it's Sir Monopoly. Oh, please. Sir Monopoly. Sir Monopoly. <laughs> And, uh, and you're doing this game right. takes forever. Well, that's why we're going to shorten it. I've never bit. seen the end of this game. You could have gone on and on. The gods, we have God, and everybody would have sat there and politely listened. That's you know. But why not cut to the chase? Why don't we just shorten this out? And, and I was thinking when you were talking about this, Monopoly is the perfect example of what you're talking about. Mm. I mean, everybody chases around these little pieces of paper. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, just five hundred. Yeah, that's. You're buying lunch Monday. Um, but you got these little pieces here. You know, you got, like, the card. That's the one I always play with. Quit, quit using my illustration. <laughs> Stop it. Yeah, the card. That's the one I always play with. You know, people worship their cars and their, you know, the status symbol of a car there. And, uh, you know, fashion. That's the hat right there. Um, it's way better if we had this on camera somewhere. Um but there's a hat, you know, it's fashion. People worship fashion and how they look and their appearance. And then, you know, friends, man's best friend, the dog. Yeah, you know, okay, yeah. People worship that. And the, the thimble. Jerry, why don't you tell everybody what the thimble means? <laughs> this is the piece no one wants. No one fights over the thimble. Right. Homemaker. Do very, Homemaker. Very good. That's better than the thimble guy that I had. Um <laughs> Then you got the wheelbarrow for work, and then, you know, you have the money bag. Um, you know, everybody wants money, worships yeah. money. That's 500s. Yeah. Um, you know, houses and hotels and everything else. And the the horse guy, you know, everybody wants valor and gallantry and, and pride. Everyone wants to be the hero. That's right. And then the shoe. That nobody plays with the shoe. And uh, and then you have the, the cannon. And why don't you tell everybody what the cannon means? Oh, this is might. Everybody wants might. Power. Might and power. Yeah. That's very good. But I thought at the end of the day, it's pretty much just people going around and around in circles just chasing after little pieces of paper. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much what you're talking about. Is that yeah, they, at the end of the day, yeah. we just have all this stuff and we're just riding around in this thing called life chasing after these little pieces of paper that if you ran the, and land on the wrong space, it goes away anyway. And then it all goes in the box. That's exactly correct. We all play the game. 
So I thought that was much better than... Well, yeah. And it also, is. thinking about it, uh-huh. thinking about it, it, it reminded me of a trip we took to Raleigh where we're just driving around for hours trying to find free parking. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah we're not going to go there. We're not going to go there. Well, that just supports my hatred of monopoly. It's really idolatry, right? It's kind of... Uh, well, the, the point is there. It's, it's, it's also in our society, too. We just don't make it so overt, but it's just as pervasive, and I think perhaps maybe just as devoutly worshipped, if not more devoutly worshipped, in America, idols, than other places that may put up a statue or a picture somewhere. So, with that thought in mind, I want us to go to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be reading together the Ten Commandments. This is something we've been talking about uh, a little bit. Uh, Mike just did a wonderful job talking about the lordship following Jesus Christ. Uh, what does it mean to be a believer and trust in him? We talked about, previous to that, the role of obedience at all uh, in a believer's life. If we're saved by the grace of God, not by the law, what's the point of the law? And we saw that uh, the obedience issue is related to our relationship, that love demands something of us. And so it's something that we do because we are in relationship with God and because He has saved us by His grace. We talked about obedience uh, meaning not agreement, okay? It's not the same thing as agreement. It is submission at the core, which basically you're allowing someone to cross your will. If you're always in agreement, that's not submission. That's agreement, okay? That's cooperating. If we're talking about obedience and submission, it implies that somewhere along the way, There's someone that you allow to make a statement, to make a command that you don't agree with. And you allow them to cross your will because of the value of that person. And so you submit to that. And so that's what God is asking of us. Allow Him to cross our will. And so we go to the Ten Commandments and we get the very specific nature of what this is. And and He goes in detail. And this is all in understanding that God is powerful, awe-inspiring, and worthy of submitting to. So, we come to the very first one, which is what separates it from all other what we call moral codes in society. Where you hear about things like Hammurabi's codes and other things that are very similar to the Ten Commandments and the social structure, but what you don't get is rule number one, which is huge, because rule number one is the springboard for all the other commandments. In fact, if you don't get number one right, then all the others fall askew and are not right in your life. In fact, uh, if you don't have God as your God, and you have no other gods before them, if if you don't have that, then you're going to go into the other areas of sin addressed by the Ten Commandments. So it is a critical one for us to spend time thinking about And what I pray what this will be is the genesis will be the beginning that God will do in your life that will continue on throughout this time, throughout this week, that God will push in your heart, your spirit, your mind for you to consider, is there another God besides him in your life? So as we go to Exodus chapter 20, uh, let's read this together. We're going to read verses 1, 2, Three, and then we'll read verse 5 as well. We'll skip number 4 and look at that next time. So in honor of this being God's word, let's stand as we read this together. 
in which God literally did speak this before the people in Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. He brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You may be seated. As we come to 1 and 2, it addresses who is giving the command. Let's just take a moment to see the origin of the command, who it is that's doing this. In verse 2, he's giving his own job description or his own qualifications. He says, I am the Lord your God. Now, I want to give you kind of a, a help as you read your Bible. Whenever you see in the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, when it sees that word Lord and you see, you notice how that word is printed, the font in your text. What's unique about it? It's all caps. Whenever you see that word given in an all caps way, it is an English um, clue of what the Hebrew word is here. When we see that, understand that that is the word for Yahweh that God gives himself. Okay, uh, That is the same title that we see in Exodus chapter 6 when God is speaking through the burning bush to Moses. And, he, and Moses asks, who is it that is sending me? Who shall I say is giving this authority, giving this command out? And, and God says, I am. It is also the word that we know as Yahweh. It's one that we never really, Jews don't know how to pronounce because we never assigned vows to him. And it was never uh, given to us to pronounce and The Jews never would try to pronounce it. Uh, they would just give these consonants there to signify that this is the unique expression, the name of God that is given. Now, that doesn't happen till Exodus 6, but you see in the book of Genesis that it's already there. Why? Because Moses is the one that's writing. Jesus said it was Moses, the one writing Genesis, and he knew God as the Yahweh God. So you'll see this in Genesis 2, that same all caps Lord given here. And so this is the unique name for the Jehovah God. It's a personal name, not just the generic Elohim that we might use as we know the word God for. It's a, it's a generic term. Uh, like many other uh, translations or languages have their generic reference for God. And so notice that's the word given. I am the, I am your God. I am the Yahweh. I am the Jehovah God, Lord, your God. And then he says, and just to remind you, I'm the one who got you out of Egypt. Now remember he's talking to the Israelites. They're the ones that were in that same generation were uh, held captive are slaves in Egypt, and God, through miraculous miracles, plagues, set the people free, got them out of Egypt so that they could worship Him at Mount Sinai. That was the point. It wasn't just to set them free. is as we learned in Galatians that we are set free to love. We are set free to worship God. And so that's what you have here. I'm the one who set you free, who got you out of the Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So he's speaking to them, not out of what they will do, but just also out of what God has done for them. I think it's important to note, and we said this last time, he says, 
I don't want you to worship other gods before we so that I will bring you out of Egypt. No, I brought you out of Egypt first. It's what God has done first in our life. And so the obedience that we have does not uh, rest on our salvation. Our, our salvation does not rest upon our obedience. It rests upon what God has done. We've learned that in Galatians. And so now that we have been saved, let's consider what God has asked us to do. The origin of the command is God himself, the redeeming God that is there for us. And so we see this again hinted at in verse 6 and verse 5. He says, I'm the one who shows steadfast love to thousands. We see this in Exodus chapter 19. He says in verse 5, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my commands, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And so we have the origin of the command. Now, one thing that they have that we don't have is that they've got the immediate context of this command coming out out of a mountain that had fire on the mountain, that had lightning up in the sky, that had the earth shaking at the voice of God, that had boundaries, that if you cross that boundary and, and step on that mountain, there was instant and sure death. <laughs> okay? This is, it changes things, doesn't it? You know? Uh, if you can imagine, fortunately, God has provided some wonderful illustrations for us this week. Okay, uh, we we have some of us a sense what it was like to have the buildings and earth shake. If you can accompany that with more of that prolonged and a voice coming out of heaven. Okay, uh, you, you get, you're going to listen to that voice. Some of us now know what it's like to have the wind blowing our house and trees. And some of us have heard trees fall. And if we can associate that now with a voice out of heaven. If you can imagine fire on a mountain, if you can imagine touching something and seeing people die, okay, this gives you a little idea of where this command is coming from. This is fresh in their minds. They're hearing this with this surrounding. And it's important for us to get a good grasp of who God is. And I just want to say in all the natural disasters that have occurred, they're just touches of his power. Just touches of his power. So the origin of the command. And then we go on and we read uh, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. I want you to look at the assumption of this command. There's no if you have a God then worship me. There's no, you guys need to worship something. So if you're going to worship something, you might as well worship me. There's no if about it. It's assumed that everyone worships. It's assumed that everyone has a God. Do you get that? It's right there. Everyone has a God. Now, You'd say, well, pastor, that's not true. There's all kinds of folks who are atheists. And by that, they mean there is no God. Well, let me ask you, how do they know that there is no God? What is it that when they hear the scriptures and they read the scriptures, what is it they're judging the scriptures by for them to come to the conclusion that the Bible is incorrect? There is a standard. There is something that they hold as true, unqualified true, that judges the Bible. And I would say when you look at that, gives you a hint as to what they're worshiping. 
We're going to look at this a little bit. How do you know what you worship? When you read this in, in conjunction with Romans 1, 18-25, which is a great New Testament parallel with this passage, uh, it, it talks about how they, we either worship the Creator or we worship the created thing. It's, it's an either-or thing. So, what you need to know, everybody comes to church with a, with a God. Everyone comes to church, whether it's the atheist or it's the Christian. We have pre-Christian gods that we've got set up. And we come to church and we all have our idols in our heart. Now, we know it wouldn't be socially correct to bring a statue with us. So we go away from the statue systems. All right? But we've got idols in our heart. And the thing is, you never really know it until you hear this command. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. You start examining your heart and you realize they were there. Law was given to reveal our sin. I remember we were uh, growing up. I I went to my family, my cousins in the farms uh, in West Virginia. I grew up with garden stuff, but you know, that's not the same thing as growing on a farm farm where you got sheep and cattle and a lot of land and that's your job you got pigs and chickens and well as a boy it was wonderful i had cousins male cousins uh on the other side i didn't have many guys that were cousins and they're all my age and we went out and the three of us the eight eight to ten year old boys on a farm is a wonderful thing and we were Running everywhere and playing and everything, playing in the in the haylofts and and uh, shooting birds, anything that moved, you know, is uh, a ten year old and a and a gun is a scary thing, you know. And and I remember coming back and uh, talking to my parents and I said, "Mom, what's all this green stuff on my shoes?" If you've been on a farm, you know what that green stuff was. I didn't know what it was. I just thought, man, it's kind of weird. You know, you run around here and get green. Mom and dad then shared with me after I had my bath and <laughs> had the clothes taken out. I said, son, that was, that was feces. That was, that was dung. That was sheep stuff. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> if I had known that, I probably would have avoided the green stuff a little bit more. You know, what you've got here is that We are living in that. And the word of God comes in and says, this, by the way, is an idol. You need to understand this. So what is what is idolatry? What is it to have another God? Well, it's a substitute God. It's it's what you worship. Uh, It's whatever you make central. It's whatever you make fundamental. It's, It's so essential to your life that you can't imagine life without it. We all are worshipers. It's inescapable. We're going to turn to something in our life and that we're going to, we're going to put such value on something in our life that we're going to say to ourselves that we can't live without that. So let me ask you, um, what would make you happy today? What would make you happy today? Chances are what would make you happy today is probably what would make you happy in general. If you look at it. I want, to, I want to put some questions to you. I want you to write down these questions. I'm going to try to go through them slowly. Because these questions, if you look at them honestly, may reveal more than you want. What you think is just green stuff, you're going to find out maybe a little bit more. What do you depend on to make life 
good. It's okay now, but if I had this, then it would be good. What has there, what has to be there for life to be worth living? It's another way of saying the same thing. What has to be there to make your life worth living? Money? Good job? Health? Good stable family? A good body? Romance? Achieving your ambitions? A challenge in your workplace? Recognition by others? So what you strive for? Maybe what a lot of folks sing about? So what do you love most? What do you love most? What are you most pursuing in your life? What are you most pursuing in your life? And and with that, what are you sacrificing to pursue it? Because whatever you sacrifice to pursue, you're automatically setting up as a hierarchy. What do you dream about for the future? When, when you're all by yourself, what do you think about? When, when you don't have to think about something else, what do you choose to think about? What do you dream about? What makes you most happy? So what do you trust in the most? What do you trust in the most? When you have a hurricane coming in, what are we finding ourselves naturally going to, trusting in? What one thing do you need to be there to feel secure about the future? And you say, as long as this is there, I'll be okay. As long as I have a job, as long as I have my family, as long as I have my health, as long as I have some money in the bank, okay, as long as I'm able to do whatever, I'll be okay. So what do you turn for, for, for comfort when life is bad? Alcohol? Food? You start looking to the good characteristics that you have about yourself and building yourself up by looking at all these good things about yourself, about your family, even music. Music's a creative thing. What do you turn to for comfort in your life? Maybe it's napping, sleeping, sleep it away. What is there in your life that losing it would absolutely devastate you? I... um, reading about a pastor, um, a fellow, his acquaintance, um, I, I don't agree with a lot of things, but um, he was the pastor of First Baptist Greensboro, uh, Ken Massey, and I was reading where he had a hernia surgery, and because of the anesthesia tube, breathing tube that they put in, or the breathing tube for the anesthesia at work, it compressed on his vocal cords, and now he can't say a, a few words before it cracks, and then he whispers. He has no voice. For some of you, that may not be a big deal. But for me, that gave me the cold chills. His backup plan for his life was to 
teach other future pastors. He says, now plan B's out. What do I do? That was a gut check for me. What, if you didn't have, would absolutely devastate you? Even your own abilities, what you see as God-given, God-given abilities, if you didn't have it, it's still God's creation. What temptations do you have that you just don't have the power to say no to? Is there a drive in you that you just can't turn off? I'm going to tell you perfectionism. There's something there underneath that. There's a drive there. Are you finding too much identity in that desire? There's a, a counselor by the name of David Pallison wrote these questions. To what do I look for life-sustaining stability, security, acceptance? What do I really want and expect from life? What would make me happy today? We've asked that one a few times. What do I look for power and success? Or where do I look for power and success? When I want to make a good impression, when I want to make good success in my life, where do I turn? What areas of my life do I go to? Who or what most rules your behavior? Lord or an idol? When you don't have to think about anything else, what do you think about? What? Now, here's a good one. What area do you most easily spend your money? And doesn't feel like you spend anything. What area do you most easily spend your money? Remember, you're sacrificing something in the pursuit of. For most people, money is pretty important. So that's why looking at your checkbook, it reveals a lot. Looking at your bank statements, look, reveal a lot. These are questions that get to not just good things, perhaps good things that are out of whack, that now you create identity from, you're driven toward. Maybe it's a standard, a standard for your own life. When you can't forgive yourself because you've broken your standard, First John says you go to God who is greater than your conscience, who forgives you. But if you can't find forgiveness for yourself, perhaps maybe because you have a standard that you're God. I shared with this a little bit when we were in Hebrews, in Hebrews uh, chapter 3. I, I was talking about chapter 2 and chapter 3, where disobedience and unbelief come interchangeable. They, they're, they're the same thing. Disobedience is unbelief. Unbelief is disobedience. They, they come together. There's something, when I sin, there's something I don't believe about God. And there's something I don't believe about God because I believe something else more than God. Let me share with you a painful self-examination uh, I was dealing with procrastination. And I'm not going to say that what I came to is the conclusion that everybody comes to. But I was asking, why do I procrastinate? Things that are difficult, that I know is going to be challenging to do, hard mentally to do, emotionally mental to do. I tend to put that off in the back burner so when I do do it, man, it looms even harder and, and, and larger. And I thought through my processes of thinking and I realized... I didn't want to do that because it was hard, and I wanted to do something else that was easy. I chose comfort, easy. Why do I choose comfort and easy? 
because I did not believe that God's plan was the best plan for me. Even though in my life, God gives me jobs and challenges to do, I say, I don't like that. I believe my plan's better, so I'm just going to do something fun and frivolous and comfortable. What has happened? I, in that moment, what grieved my heart, it wasn't just like, man, this is just a problem, you know, it's making me ineffective. What the Holy Spirit brought to me was that I had another God. I had the God of comfort. And I was saying to God, I don't think your plan is right. I've got a better plan that brings more comfort to me. And I did not believe God. What are some other examples of false worship? When we read this, it tells a lot about ourselves. It's isn't it amazing how you can be with somebody that's very much like you. You go through the similar circumstances they go through, but for them, it tears them apart. For you, it's not a big deal. Ever wonder why that is, or why for you it tears you apart, and for someone else, it doesn't seem like a big deal. The reason is is because you guys have different gods. Romance, relationships, the dog, and monopoly. All right. When we go without, you know, if you can imagine back before you're married, you were without a date, you were without a significant other, whatever you want to call it. All right, going with, what dating, what? All right, you were without that for a long period of time, year and a half, whatever. Some folks, that was their life, no big deal. But for some people, it tore them up. And they go from boyfriend to boyfriend to boyfriend, girlfriend to girlfriend to girlfriend. And as soon as one was out, they quickly had another. And then when that doesn't happen, they get angry. They get bitter. Get angry. Before, soon it gets angry at all women. And they get angry at all men because their God has cursed them and they're abandoned. It's, it's normal to feel lonely. But when there's this, this depression that comes with it, this bitterness in it, then they feel cursed and they, and they lash out at their God. Relationships that comes through men or comes through women. When you say we're nobody till somebody loves you. Your work. We're nobody till somebody promotes you. We're, when, when someone recognizes you, for your work. Driven. Your identity. And that when you don't have that job, you don't have that recognition, then you feel abandoned. If no one's recognizing you. Your body. Your human body. Have you wondered why some people wear what they wear and reveal what they reveal? Because they want someone to adore their body as much as they adore their body. They want to find their value in their body being worshipped. And they'll sacrifice all kinds of things and even destroy their own health to maintain their view of a body image. Self-expression. I was watching a movie and this past week and, and it was an intriguing movie. Um, had some, well, there's a guy that was basically, the, the, the man for God was telling me you can't have a relationship. Um, the, the, the person, the chairman is what they called him for God. 
said, you, you can't go down this relationship. And, and the guy responded by saying, if it feels so right, how can it be so wrong? You said that to yourself? You've heard that before? If it feels so right, how can it be so wrong? And what you're saying is that the chief unqualified value is in expressing myself, living for myself. And so if someone comes in and tries to cross that, no, that's a sin itself. You can't be God. You can't be that. If you're telling me I can't have this relationship, you're, you're trying to cross my will? No. Self-expression. You don't believe that God has the best for you. You don't believe that in God's way there is satisfying love. Children. I'm convinced that in America, Christian society, and I I want you to understand, I'm not talking to just atheists. I'm talking to church people. I'm talking to Christians. We bring our gods in with us. And I think that we've grown up and we've, we've reacted so much from folks who abandoned kids or didn't pay much attention to kids and we've listened to focus on the family we've heard all kinds of of good strategies of how to take care of our kids but we've swung so that we're no longer god-centered but child-centered in our families we have to be careful i remember a father was trying to comfort him and his 21 year old was killed in a car accident just was there in the emergency room and we saw the body together and visited the next day and was trying to pray with him and comfort him. He just looked at me and said, what good is praying going to do? I've prayed my whole life for the safety of my kids and look what happened. Burying my son. Whenever we say what good is worshiping God if, Whatever you put at the end of that if statement is your God. And God is the servant to that God. When we say to God, I will obey God as long as or if. Whatever you put at the end of as long as or if. Congratulations, you found a God. And what's so heinous is that you made the creator God servant to that. Church. Church can be a God. Your method of worship or method of ministry can be a God. You find your identity. It saturates or controls all your thoughts. You've got to do it this way. We've got to sing this way. Church has got to look like this. And we find a comfort our identity. These are still creations. They're not God. Power. The drive to obtain. It's not that you have that car. It's that you've got the means to buy that car if you just want to. I, you know, I just want to live so that I can do whatever I want to. And you accumulate that might. That power. that drives you. Your reputation. To be liked by others and impressive to them. This is, this is one of the things that God has identified in my own life. A tendency to have the idol of being well liked. 
have my reputation intact. That people that they don't like me, but they're impressed by me. That they have that. And that's something I've seen that can saturate everything that I do that I call worship. It can be a God. When I've heard someone say, I've, I've served God. I've served God enough. We've done enough. When as a church, when we come to worshiping God, we come to ministering, doing the Great Commission, we say something like, well, we've done enough. I, you didn't finish the sentence. Would you please finish the sentence for me? We've served God enough for what? What? What's, what's the value? What, what is it that you're comparing it to? The thing is, is that when I see Scripture and I see who God is and I see that I'm saved by the grace of God, there is no more any limits. When I say to God, I've done enough, I need to finish the sentence. Enough for me to maintain my comfort level? Then guess what I've sacrificed? I've sacrificed God for my comfort. Guess who God is? It's not Yahweh. It's comfort. The assumption of our command. Let's go on. Let's look at the nature of this command. It says, let's read this verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. So we read that and we think, oh, okay, well, God's just asking us to prioritize. (laughs) Yeah, it's okay. Comfort, money, power, relationships, family, children, as long as God's number one, God, family, country, right? Right? That's what we're taught. It's a good American thought. God, family, country. There's no other gods before him. But let's, let's look at what this means. Before me, uh, well, literally for you, uh, Hebrew literal meaning is for you there shall be no other gods besides me or in my presence. All right? So... All right, imagine if my wife said, okay, um, you're my husband in my presence. That's not going to work, right? As long, as long as you're in my presence, before my face, I'm your wife and you're my husband. We know there's a lot of severe limitations to that. But what if my wife was all-knowing? <laughs> what if my wife could be everywhere at all the time? what we call omnipresent. What if there is nothing that exists that my wife couldn't see? Well, now we're talking about something totally different, and I married God, okay? God is all-knowing. He is omnipresent. And so when he says, literally, before my face, there's no limitation on which his face points. He is all-knowing. So what he is simply saying is that in my presence, and I am everywhere, there is no other God. It's not a priority. It's an exclusivity. Now, in that day and time, the, the, it's still in the back of the minds of the listeners about the gods of Egypt. There was a cow god, a representative of a cow god that was in their head, even as in just a little while they're going to be making their own calf. Interesting enough, you see the sacred bull of Egypt, the Epis god. They've discovered sarcophagi of the bulls, embalmed and buried in sarcophagus. 
Let me just give you a clue. If you have to bury your God, it's probably not a good God. Okay? So they'd bury their God, embalm him, and they would look for a bull that was born the same time that bull died. They said, oh, here's Epi's. Here is our new bull God. And evidently, this part of the thinking, even of the Israelites, uh, as in just a little while after hearing this, they themselves will have another God before them. Uh, in the plagues of Egypt, we find that God is refuting all the powers, even the, the Nile River and all the Egyptian gods through the plagues. And as he's saying, I am greater than. And the Philistines later on will find that Dagon, the fish god of the Philistines, will bow down at the altar of the, or the Ark of the Covenant to say that God is greater. And Marduk of Babylon, it is saying that God is greater. He makes Babylon rise and makes them fall. Marduk is not the one. It's not the Kimash of the Moabites. It's not the Baals of the Canaanites. It's not the monopoly pieces of today. There is no other gods. It's not, it's not pantheism where everything is God and we're all part of God, which is a popular thought, which means that, you know what? No one can cross my will because after all, I'm God and I'm making my own design. It's, it's not penotheism, which says there is one God superior to all the others. It's saying there is only God. All others are of man's concepts and worship. There is no other God. It's not certainly atheism. And it's not monotheism, where there is a God that's not God of the Bible, of Jesus. He is saying, Yahweh, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, you shall not bow down to them, which is to make yourself vulnerable to them. You're not to obey them. You see, whatever is your God, you will bow down, you will obey, you will serve. He says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. You will not trust in them. Okay? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In other words, God says, I want your affection. So whatever your heart or whatever is your God, your heart goes toward. You obey, you serve, you trust in. And God says, I don't want this of you. I want it of, I want this of you toward others. I want it of you toward me. You're to bow, you're to obey me, to serve me. I want your heart. Neither is anything you love more than God, trust more than God, obey more than God. And it's always evident because you'll sacrifice God and his ways to maintain it. When I come across folks, young people I meet from time to time, and they say, you know what? I'm, I'm in this relationship. I ask, well, are they a believer? Nah, I don't know. They talk about it. I don't talk about things like that. Why not? Because it's embarrassing. We're, not, we're just not there yet. But your heart is. Your heart's there. I said, have you read the scripture where it says, don't be married to an unbeliever? You read that? And I'll just say, you know, what are you sacrificing? You sacrificing God for a relationship? Congratulations. Meet your idol. I say this. I know what it's like. I've been there. I've done that. I've experienced what it is to have a relationship with someone that's not a believer, who's not walking the same paths I'm walking. And I saw what it did, and God was far from my head. I couldn't even tune in and listen to my dad preaching. My mind wasn't there. Sad reality is if you're there, you're probably not even listening. Because your heart's with your idol. 
Let's look at the goodness of this command. The goodness of this command. You see this again. He says, don't bow down to them. Don't serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. In other words, there will be consequences. It will devastate you. It will impact you and others around you. God's warning us. It's, it's just like someone saying, don't go out in the ocean when there's a hurricane. You'll die. There'll be consequences. God is saying, don't go into other gods. It will devastate you. He says, but look at me. You're showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments with me. There is grace. He says, if you go down this way, it'll be a springboard for all the others. And he starts listing out the other commands that hit different gods that we have. Paul Tripp, a counselor, which is great. If you have these books, I encourage you to read them. They're very good. He says, you worship your way into sin. You worship your way into sin. Therefore, you have to worship your way out. It's not just a behavior issue that needs to be changed. It's a heart issue. It's what you believe about God that's at stake here. So where do the gods finally die? Where did these gods finally die? I think in Romans 1, 18 through 25. says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In other words, they hear these things about God, but they don't believe them. They don't believe them. They don't believe God's plan is the best plan. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles." Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they, listen, exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshipped it, served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. How do we let these gods die? First of all, by the grace of God to see that these idols are lies. We have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. I'm going to tell you that if you do, number one, you're not going to be saved. You saying if I don't have any other gods but God before me, I'm not going to be right with God? No. The Bible says in Galatians that it's not by the working of the law that you're saved. It's by the grace of God that you're saved, even if you love God. It takes the grace of God to change you. So first of all, pray for the grace of God to see the idols that are in your life. Name it for what it is to say, this is a God. The problem we have is we don't see it as God. We just see it, oh, it's just one of the things I'm interested in. Surely it's not that bad, right? Well, depends on if you get identity from it, you're trusting in it, if you're loving it more than God. Yes, it's wrong. So call it what it is. It's an idol. Unmask it. In other words, see the lie. Why is it that you go to this? Why is it you strive, you pursue it, because you believe that it's going to provide something for you? And it won't. It's lying to you. 
You're exchanging the truth of God for a lie to say that if I get this power, if I get that job promotion, if I get that relationship, if I get that children, or if I get that children out of my house, if I get these things, then I'm going to be okay and it's going to be good. Don't believe it. It's promising something it can't offer you. So take the truth of God and exchange it for the lie. Know the truth of God. Exchange it for the lie that you have believed. Name it. Unmask it. Rejoice. And that Jesus is worth it. Now look, think about it. He's saying, worship him. Here's the good news. God is the only one that's going to outlast your tomb. This is good news. He said, I want you to put your heart, to put your life, put your future, and the one thing that will outlast the tomb. It won't be your reputation. It won't be your character. It won't be what people think of you because the reality is that in 50 years, the people who knew you are going to die. Even your grandchildren might have a faint memory or your great-grandchildren might know your name. It's not what people think of you because that's not going to outlast the tomb. It's not the car. It's not the relationship. It's not the home. It's not the materials. These things get put in the box. If you have to bury your tomb, bury your God, it's not a good thing. If it's your, your marriage partner, if it's your children, are you going to be like that man I told you about? Or someday, it could very well be, it's possible, that you bury your own child. Don't worship that which you have to bury. God is the only proper object of, worthy, of worship. He alone is worthy of permanent devotion. He is the only one that will not bankrupt, destroy, disappoint you. In other words, what He says I promise you He does. And so you better know what He promises. And don't add to it. What He promises, He does. He alone is the object of our ultimate authority. He's revealed, and listen, He has revealed everything we need to know to properly relate to Him. Let me say that again. Let me say that again. He has revealed everything we need to know to properly relate to Him. He's not revealed everything you want to know. He's revealed everything you need to know to properly relate to Him. There will be things that will happen in your life where you don't know why it happens the way it does. There will be uncomfortable, painful things. And you want to know why, but He's only revealed to you all that you need to know to relate to Him. He's the only one worthy of unqualified trust. He's the only one that's not going to throw you under the eternal bus. Our most dear folks in our life, our fathers, our mothers, our children, our spouses. Well, our children probably would say this about, but we'd say they would never intentionally hurt us. The children probably would. But they would unintentionally hurt you, wouldn't they? Because they're human. God is the only one who's without sin. When he does, gives a promise that is for your eternal good. It is that. And it is ours to believe. 
It's interesting when you're in the hospital. It's amazing. Being in the hospital. I mean, if, 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 you're, if it's about body image, <laughs> it's not happening in the hospital, is it? I mean, you got that nice little gown. Hair's been all for a week, you know, without shampoo or whatever. You stink, you know, got tubes hanging out of you. If it's about getting things done, I'm a mover and a shaker. I'm about being effective. You're stuck there, the TV on. You can't go out of the room because you got an IV stuck to you. Relationships, people aren't around you. It may be that you die in the hospital. You're about to say goodbye to them. It's amazing how a hospital kind of gives you a little perspective. When you lose that and you're devastated, shows what your God is. When you die, listen, if God, the Yahweh God, is your God, when you die, you've not lost. <laughs> you've gained. But when you come to dying and your gods are the things of this world where you're not burying them, but they're burying you and it's all dead, then you've got major problems. Because those gods aren't going with you. Romans 1, again, verse 24. These people were worshiping other gods. Therefore, God gave them up to their gods. You understand the worst punishment that God could give you is to give you up to your God? Think about it. Relationships, your God, romance is your God, whatever it may be. What's the worst thing happen? You get married. You get married. Allow yourself to go that way. And you have all these hopes and aspirations that belong to God that you're given to your spouse. And you wonder why they can't measure up. And then you get angry at them, bitter at them, because they're not doing all the things you want them to do. Never asked of them to do. You break up in bitterness, anger. But it could very well be if God works in that, or you understand you've been worshiping something else outside of God, then God gave you a measure of grace in the most painful way. If it's your standard, the worst thing that could happen, God give you up to your standard to let you find measure of success in your standard. And you never seek God. If it's your children, God gives you children and lets you indulge them and sacrifice God. Worst thing that could happen is for God to allow that to happen. Because here's the thing. As I read this, either God is alone God or he is not your God. And that's what grieved me when I was examining my heart about procrastination. It wasn't just an ineffective thing. It wasn't just a, a silly thing that I could laugh off. It became such a thing. And I'm not saying everybody procrastinates does this. This, okay, this is my heart. Spirit of God saying to me, you don't worship me. And the grief of my heart was not because I was ineffective. 
the grief of my heart is, oh God, I'm a sinner. I'm an idolater before you. The good news is that God knew that and loved me anyway and gave me his grace. But it wasn't a grace to allow me to sit in my idolatry. It was a grace that gave me great grief and pain because I was hurting him to change my heart and changing my heart. Sanctification is the process of learning to have there is no other gods in my life. Who's your God?